Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, What's Your Pleasure? Poetry and Perspectives on Pleasure on the Spiritual Path. The talk was given by Karen Sprut Frankovich on July 1st, 2023, via Zoom. Karen is a teacher of all aspects of yoga, the physical and the philosophical, the scientific and the mystical. She is a longtime student of Lee Lozowick. In this talk, she notes that the word pleasure is boxed in by meanings we've given it in English, but that in Sanskrit, it refers to something deeper, a frequency that is always present and that we can tune into. Karen discusses aspects of the yoga tradition and of Chinese medicine, including face reading, which can indicate an imbalance in giving and taking in. Toward the end of the talk, she references a quote by George Bernard Shaw before there is discussion in which a similar statement is attributed to Werner Erhard. After review of an online article, it appears that the Shaw quote may have been used in some of Werner's programs. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Karen Sprut Frankovich. Okay, well, I will dive in. I want to say first, I like to avoid a whole lot of we statements, we all this and you that, but it's hard to give a talk without some we's and you's. So please excuse me, because really this is coming from my own experience. And I know a lot of you have depths of experience, and I bow to that. So here's my experience. And this is based on the yoga tradition, some Chinese medicine, and some poetry to enliven it and embroider it as we go along. A lot of it was born out of well, half a year long work we did, a group of us studying some of the goddesses and being inspired by that study. So I want to start with the story of Shiva and Parvati. And this is a myth. And the way I am approaching myth, at least for tonight, is the idea that every part of the myth is a part of us, part of me, part of you whether acknowledged and activated or unconscious and dormant. So Shiva and Parvati, the god and the goddess, are having a fight. They're having a tiff. It starts out kind of small, no big deal, but then it begins to escalate and it gets worse. And then Parvati, she starts to really get emotional and hot and angry. And Shiva, very cool and serene, says, honey, you're too much. You need to calm down. Well, of course, that just makes her more furious. And he tells her, you're too much. This is too much. And she gets so furious at being told that she's too much that she transforms. And this is a thing that the goddesses can do. They're shapeshifters. So she transforms into a very frightening form, which is Kali. So a lot of you know about Kali. And in this form, she's fierce and bloody and implements of destruction and so forth. And of course, Shiva wants to get out of the house right now. 
And so he runs for the door and Kali blocks the door. So he knows there's a back door. So he runs for the back door and another form blocks the back door. And he runs for a window and another form, let's call it Dumavati. Dumavati is one of the forms of the goddess and she's old she's a crone she smells bad and she's frinky and nobody likes dumavati and well i do but shiva of course runs from dumavati and this story goes on every window and door that he tries to escape from another form of her arises to block his escape and in one of his escape attempts one of the forms that blocks his escape is kamala a beautiful, gorgeous form. She is the form of pleasure itself, of beauty and abundance. And he runs away from it. And uh, so this is partly where I'm going with this talk. Why would you run away from that? Anyway, as the myth unfolds, Shiva realizes that the only way out is surrender. He lies down in total surrender. And all the forms of the goddess shapeshift back into one. And then they have union, ecstatic union, the god and the goddess. So as you know, probably, Shiva represents, in this myth anyway, unitary consciousness, the kind of clarity, a singularity of focus. In fact, Shiva is sometimes represented as sitting at the top of Mount Kailasa in meditation. His world eyes are closed, so the multiplicity of forms eyes are closed, and his unitary eye is open. So he's, he's got the singleness of vision, that clarity that you might experience maybe in deep meditation or times out in nature when it's really quiet and you're really clear, contained, centered. And then the goddess takes the shaktis, shaktis being powers. The shaktis represent the many forms, as Darwin said, many forms most wondrous, the 10,000 forms, the 10 million forms that God takes in the world. And I want to talk about one of those forms, and that's the form of pleasure. I can call it for the moment Kamala, the goddess Kamala. Her power, though, is the power or the Shakti of Sri. And Sri is a shining fullness of pleasure, beauty, abundance, a shining fullness of pleasure. And Kamala is said to be the tantric form of Lakshmi. So Kamala's Shakti or power, like all Shaktis, is a vibration. And this particular vibration brings meaning and beauty and abundance. It's like the water that waters the garden. And it's a frequency that is always present. And I'm calling it Shri because it's a beautiful word and I'll talk more about it in just a moment. But the word pleasure in English, we've already got it boxed. I've already got it boxed. Pleasure. Oh, that means that. It's smallerized by all the meanings and stories that I have learned to associate with the word pleasure. Whereas when I shift to the word Shri, it allows my mind to get bigger, to be more spacious around, whoa, what does that mean? So I use Shri a lot in the talk, but also I'll use the word pleasure as well. So Shri itself, the word is a very old Sanskrit word. And Shri is a word that was given to something deeper, a frequency that's really primordial, a primordial vibration. 
that existed before it took on the name or word Shri, the mantra, Shri is a mantra too, or before it took on the form of, say, for example, Kamala or Lakshmi, a primordial vibration. And you see that in other mythologies too. There's these primordial vibrations, frequencies that give rise to the creation of the world. And then stories and myths and language come up to describe those vibrations. But it's wonderful to remember the deeper vibration because it's a frequency that I want to talk about tuning into, whether you call it Shri or pleasure, the fundamental principle that creates the world. So Shri as a frequency. And I don't know about you, but I'm always tuned into some frequency, whether consciously or unconsciously usually more than one frequency for sure. And this is a matter of habit of where my attention goes. And of course, I and maybe you live in a lifestyle where there's some really, really loud radio stations that I can tune my antenna to. And they're so loud and prevalent that I begin to call it normal. It's just the way things are. And it's so easy to forget. It's just a radio station. It's just one track along which energy potentially can move. But I reinforce it by calling it reality, basically, and by cementing it into my statement that it is reality by telling stories about it. Turn on the news and I say, that's reality. I heard it on the news. You heard something on the news and it's one aspect of reality. It's it's like that, that analogy anyway, it works for me. So In my practice, yoga, meditation, pranayama, those types of self-observation type practices, the power of the practice is an opportunity to bring consciousness to what radio stations I'm tuning into and perhaps turn off some of those stations, limiting, but also expand what I tune into, expand what I think I am which is sometimes a very narrow frame. Can I widen the frame, learning to tune into frequencies beyond what I have grown accustomed to call what I am? So I like to visualize my midline as an antenna. When I connect to that midline aspect of myself, perhaps I have a little bit of a ledge of freedom to choose the frequency I tune into. There's a term called Shiva Drishti, I bet a lot of you know that, is the possibility of staying in what you can call Shiva consciousness, a clarity of the antenna, so to speak, a clarity of my centeredness, while also looking out at the 10,000 things. And it is said by the great teachings that as I stay with this more and more, this Shiva Drishti, this Shiva gaze, I'll eventually, gradually, but inevitably, learn to see God in all things, learn to see Sri in all things. But on the way to that very high aim, first, it's inescapably necessary for me to do the strong practice of consciously tuning, consciously choosing the frequency more often than I grew up learning to do, let me put it that way. And that's why I wanted to do this talk. 
I think the talk wanted to do me, basically. I'm not naturally longing to do talks, <laughs> but, but they come and get you when uh, you're supposed to do them, I think. So the tuning in to Shri is, in my view and various teachers' views, so important right now in the world. And our tendency to choose it is perhaps not so strong. Maybe there's more of a tendency to sidestep pleasure, shri, beauty, and choose other frequencies that we've been fairly well conditioned to choose. Velcro for the negative is probably a pretty common term in people's minds now, choosing that habitually. And choosing shri and pleasure is not about endless self-gratification or massaging my comfort zone. All the ways I've been taught to think of pleasure, really by patriarchal, religious, educational, spiritual teachings, and by Western culture's emphasis on work, work, work. My family's emphasis on work, work, work. My education's emphasis on work, work, work. I've got that. I definitely have that. I know the effort rising up part of the story. And this is why I want to cultivate a capacity to allow grace raining down. And rather than thinking of pleasure, as I tend to do, as the last thing on the list after all the work is done. And that can be the spiritual work or the physical work or whatever. Only after all the work is done, maybe some pleasure. So I have a poem to go with that that I'd like to read to you. It's by Tony Hoagland. And here we go. Down near the bottom of the crossed out list of things you have to do today, between green thread and broccoli, you find that you have penciled sunlight. Resting on the page, the word is beautiful. It touches you as if you had a friend. And sunlight were a present she had sent from someplace as distant as this morning to cheer you up and to remind you that among your duties, pleasure is a thing that also needs accomplishing. Do you remember that time and light are kinds of love? And love is no less practical than a coffee grinder or a safe spare tire? Tomorrow you may be utterly without a clue, but today, you get a telegram from the heart in exile proclaiming that the kingdom still exists. The king and queen alive, still speaking to their children, to anyone among them who can find the time to sit out in the sun and listen. So I have an analogy that works for me about choosing Shri. And this is imagining that I'm waking up in the morning and I'm in an Airbnb, but I don't know I am. I actually don't know that I'm not home. I'm in an Airbnb somehow. And there is a radio station playing. And it's not something I chose. It's just something that Siri pre-programmed into the Airbnb. It's a quick little metaphor. It's pretty simple. But wake up in the morning, not at home in myself, not at home in Shiva Midline Awareness. And my whole being starts to tune into the frequencies that are present, whatever they are, and there's plenty. Or I can pause and have a little ledge of freedom and awareness that allows choice. And of course, that's one of the purposes of a morning meditation practice, can be one of the purposes. When my kids were little, really little, I was in a community of friends and we all had little kids and 
we shared a culture of having no TVs. The story amongst us was that at about three o'clock in the afternoon, when this very popular kids show would come on, kids would sit down. (laughs) It was time to watch TV. Little people are especially colonizable by these frequencies. Anyway, Shri is a frequency. Again, it's always present. It's always here. It's a really important point about that because if something's always present and always here, that leaning forward to get it just goes away. It's irrelevant. So my curiosity for myself is, can I consistently make a practice of tuning to Shri? I have no problem understanding it's a frequency. That's easy. I get that fundamentally. Can I then do the practice of tuning to Shri as a reality that's already here, ever present, never absent, without my doing anything? Really, then I have to focus on undoing and untangling my attachment, my identification and addiction to some of these radio stations. And it's big work because they're so strong. Some of the frequencies, the radio stations are super strong. And I just move into them and call them me. This is me. This bundle of beliefs is me. Or these glasses that I'm wearing metaphorically are showing me reality. And I look at the world and I think I'm seeing reality. And in fact, I'm using a pair of glasses. And we're all going to use pairs of glasses. We see through limited perspective. Everybody, of course. But do I know it? or not? Or do I just swallow it whole? That's what I'm interested in. And the core entangled knot, it is like a knot. The word in Sanskrit is granti, G-R-A-N-T-H-I, the granti, the knot of energy. We find the core knot of lack, the deficit model, and its close cousin is fear. Lack is a collective belief, particularly in the U.S., There are core beliefs in every country, and my teacher Lee said they're usually very easy to recognize. In the U.S., one of the biggest core beliefs is that there's not enough. I am not enough. My car is not big enough. I am not fit enough. My house is not big enough. I'm not attractive enough. My teeth are not white enough. My hair is not something or other enough. I just am not enough. I don't have enough. There's not enough time. How about that one? Deficit of time. Not enough time. Not enough time. Not enough time. It's all lack. Or even just saying there's something wrong with me. I think there's something wrong with me. I don't have enough health. I don't have enough vigor. So all of that is based on lack. And fear swoops in to keep it company. So this core belief of lack, the U.S. has a huge influence. Its financial system has spread all over the world. So that sense of lack, of not enough, creates a sort of impotence beyond the borders of the U.S., impotence. But Shri is potency. Keeping people in a sense of lack is actually a very potent place to keep humans for capitalism's sake. Of course, if you have a core belief of not enough, something's wrong with you, and the fear comes with that, it's very easy to sell you something (laughs) just like that, whatever it is. So there are powers that be that are not personal to any of us individually that keep us tangled up in that core belief. And that in turn keeps us from Shri. 
and keeps us adding and building and supplementing and dieting and self-improving, self-improving, self-improving. When holiness is right here, just right here, right now, and before religion and patriarchy and self-improvement, pleasure was easier to recognize in small ways, simple ways. The moments that are easy to overlook now, that seem insignificant, that we skip over. Like, who convinced us? Who convinced us that simple is stupid? Who convinced us of that? Or that slow is lazy? Or that the body is lesser, that pleasure is dangerous, or the emotions are too much? Wow, who convinced me of that? It's in me for sure. I have that tangled in. So I have a couple of lyrics I want to share with you that point out this lack. So the first one is from Frank Sinatra, who was a wonderful man. I didn't know him personally. (laughs) This song was super popular in the 50s, I believe it was, or maybe the 60s also. I'm not going to sing it, and I'm just going to read a few of the lyrics. But if you listen, I think you'll hear lack in it. For once in my life, I have someone who needs me, someone I've needed so long. For once in my life, I won't let sorrow hurt me, not like it's hurt me before. For once, I have something I know won't desert me. For once, I can say, this is mine. You can't take it. So talk about a frequency that was playing on radios all over the place. And it was very hugely popular. In fact, You're probably lucky in more than one way that I wasn't singing it, but lucky in the sense that it's kind of an earworm. As soon as I tune in, I can't get it out of my ears. And then there is another song I wanted to bring up, and this is from Louis Armstrong, who grew up, of course, in the U.S., but outside of dominant white culture. So a little different. And I think you'll hear the difference in this very popular song. I see trees of green, red roses, too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Comparing and contrasting black and something else, Shri. (laughs) So yeah, authentic practice, sadhana, the work. I don't use that term so much, but it makes sense. Authentic practice has work to it, has effort rising up to offer us a time-honored or very reliable way to undo and untangle and unclench and see beliefs for what they are, radio stations. And then in the parting of that plethora of frequencies, we may begin to see Sri and its abundance. I wanted to bring in another couple of poems and quotes here just for fun and to tune into the frequency of Sri. So take a breath. This first one is by Rumi. What souls desire arrives. We are sitting up to our necks in the sacred pool. Majesty is here. The grains of the earth take in something they do not understand. Where did this come from? It comes from where your longing comes. From which direction? 
as rightness comes to fruit. This answer lights a candle in the chest of anyone who hears. Most people only look for the way when they hurt. Pain is a fine path to the unknowable. But today is different. Today, the quality we call splendor puts on human clothes, walks through the door, closes it behind and sits down with us in companionship. And from Franz Kafka, a quote that speaks to me about how Sri is a frequency that's always here, no need to grasp. He says, you do not need to do anything. You do not need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. You do not even need to listen, just wait. You do not even need to wait, just become still. And the world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in pleasure and ecstasy at your feet. And then just one more for now, again, about the idea of not reaching for something to fix myself so that I can earn pleasure or deserve Shri, but that the practice is about allowing allowing an already ever-present frequency. And this is by Tara Sophia Moore. It's called The Quiet Power. I walked backwards against time, and that's where I caught the moon singing at me. I steeped downwards into my seat, and that's where I caught freedom waiting for me, like a lilac. I ended thought, and I ended story, I stopped designing and arguing and sculpting a happy life. I didn't die. I didn't turn to dust. Instead, I chopped vegetables and made a calm lake in me where the water was clear and sourced and still. And when the ones I loved came to it, I had something to give them, and it offered them a soft road out of pain. I became beloved. And I came to know that this was it, the quiet power. I could give something mighty, lasting, that stopped the wheel of chaos by tending to the river inside, keeping the water rich and deep and pleasurable, and keeping a bench for you to visit. I think of it as an honor, really an honor, a truly an honor to speak about Sri. I think of Shri is not a word way bigger than that, like something I bow to with deep devotion. I think that serving the frequency of Shri can be a life purpose, what we call in Chinese medicine a golden path, or in yoga we call it a dharma, sva dharma, your individual dharma, or James Hillman calls it a soul's code. So serving the frequency of Sri can be one's golden path in and of itself. Because each time one turns into this frequency, it allows a kind of music, a particular very important frequency of music to flow out and be made visible in the world. Again, so Sri is an expression of the essence that's made possible each time we untangle and soften. Beauty is allowed. Leisure is allowed to flow, and that is Sri. And then Sri is also a bridge because 
when accessed, when tuned into, it will follow one back out into the world and it be expressed out in a multitude of simple ways or big ways. I often have an experience of a simple smile, just, wow, that made my day. And it wasn't personal. It wasn't a big deal. It was real, for sure. One of those smiles that actually gets up to your eyes. (laughs) It's an example of Sri following us out into the world and creating transformation in powerful and subtle ways. So there's a word I want to bring that is, I think, intrinsic to Sri, and it's the word care. The idea being like when you choose a little more care in how you do something, a little more care in how you prepare a meal, for example, a little more care in how you put the food on the plate. My husband and I recently were walking in downtown Spokane, the city near us. We were walking in an old part of town. There's the old houses, like 1900 or so. It's being gentrified. So there's the new houses going up right next door to the old houses. And it's really interesting to see these old houses and the beautiful woodwork and scroll work for no reason. Not efficient, just beautiful. And then right next to it is efficient. One of those situations where they're square and they're mostly metal. And I enjoy the look of them for sure in a certain way. But it's efficiency. It's it's a frequency. It's like we have a lifestyle of efficiency and cost effectiveness and practicality. And efficiency is also a necessary frequency for sure. But when it dominates, like it's tending to do, we often lose the frequency or capacity to tune into the frequency of Sri. An example is when I'm lazy and buy ready-made food, even if it's really organic and all that, because I have lack, lack of time. And I actually tuning into lack when I do that, it's interesting. Whereas ironically or almost paradoxically taking time to prepare a meal, I'm tuning into the frequency of abundance of time and a tree and the presentation of the meal and the visuals and all of that. So I did say I'll bring up a little bit of Chinese medicine and I don't have time to talk too much about it, but I think there is this one interesting thing that correlates well with Sri and with the whole idea of food preparation and eating. In Chinese medicine, we say that it's best to eat in a way that transforms your food into qi, prana, life energy. Like the old grandmothers in China, they don't want you to diet and eat food that you don't like because to eat without pleasure, Chinese medicine says, you don't do a very good job of transforming food into qi. And why is that important anyway? Well, the story goes on. If you want to follow your golden path, your dharma, your soul's code, then it's very important that you know how to transform food into chi to fuel and fund your ability to follow your golden path. And this is true with breath as well, breathing in a way that has pleasure. It's also true with movement practices like yoga and walking and swimming and qigong, tai chi, whatever your movement practices are that performed with pleasure transforms the movement practice into qi. And that doesn't mean that it's not hard or there's not strong sensation or discomfort. Certainly there's that too. But if the pleasure departs, so does to a large extent anyway, the transformation of the movement or the breath or the food into qi. So there's a little Chinese medicine. 
But now I'll get back to the idea of pleasure as a pitfall. Yes, of course, pleasure and desire, of course, can lead me into areas where the spiritual ideas and doctrines tell me there is danger, because there is. Areas that are opposed to spiritual freedom, of course, longing and desire for pleasure can lead me into frequencies that are super willing and ready to feed on me and my desire. But remember the story of Shiva and the various goddesses blocking his attempt to escape. The myth is saying there's nothing that is opposed to spiritual freedom. Everything is a portal or a trap. It just depends on how I approach it. That's why we call Tantra Razor's Edge. Of course, desire can lead me to addiction and obsession and craving. But that same energy is also a portal leading me to fulfillment and creativity and that which keeps life abundantly flowing. Desire, it's an expression of Shri, it's attraction, it's magnetism, it's the creative force that brings something into being from no thing, from formlessness into form, like the Big Bang of egg and sperm meeting. That kind of manifestation of life energy is correlated with the Shakti of Shri. So when desire comes, I would like to learn to become more and more skillful at seeing it as a portal, an opportunity to look at the surface of the thing I'm desiring and tune into the frequency of the desire itself. That's a subtle practice and more subtle is more advanced. So acknowledging that right from the get-go. But can I learn more and more to pause and wonder, where does this desire come from? Where does it arise from? Like Rumi's poem, he says, what soul's desire arrives, where does this come from? It comes from where your longing comes, his poem says. So if I follow that kind of breadcrumb trail of desire, I find a kind of frequency there. The object that I desire seems to be out there, just out of reach, and it is. Let's say I desire a really beautiful dress. And this is a physical expression of a deeper energetic frequency. And usually I can easily get glued to the object of desire. And so I buy the dress, Amazon delivers. <laughs> and then I'm so discontented with what I have. It's I'm less able to feel what I do have. And then I want something more, another dress or whatever. So if I can begin to see through the form of the object or the dress and feel the frequency, that's the work and that's the play, whatever. So I can ask myself, what is it I think I will get? What is it I think I will feel after I have that beautiful dress or whatever it is, fill in the blank, and then tune into that frequency? How do I want to feel in that dress? Well, I want to feel beautiful. I want to feel relaxed. I want to feel comfortable, at ease. I want to feel like I belong in the world and in the world of beauty. The great ones tell me there's no distance between those qualities and myself. They're in me. Beauty, ease, peace, freedom, all those qualities are said by the great teachers to be within each of us. Doesn't mean I don't get to have the dress, but if I think those qualities are linked to the dress, I've missed the point. If I think it's linked to the object, then I'm just going to want more objects. More, 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 more. Lack, 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 lack. 
The more I practice to tune into the frequency, eventually I am told I will see Sri in all things, God in all things. That would be amazing. I would be seeing from a way deeper part of myself. All the surface tension relaxing, a kind of windshield wiper of Sri, 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 clearing my vision, entering more deeply into a vibratory field of Sri. Sometimes I'm almost embarrassed to talk about this, but like, what would it be if I could see myself that way? Like, if I could see myself as just as beautiful as I see my cat. My cat's really, really beautiful, by the way. So what would that be like if I could become that present or see with that kind of view from a deeper part of myself, my very self, to be in that kind of a relationship with myself? I think, wow, would that be good for the whole world if we could do that? Here's another poem for you that speaks to just exactly that. And it's called Love After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Oh, I'm almost done with the talking and then I want to hear from people, but I wanted to mention a few ways of missing Sri, getting in my own way of Sri, that I think maybe more than just me can relate to. One way is not savoring. I kind of mentioned that with the transformation of food into chi, because to transform food into chi, you really do have to sit and savor and enjoy. But oftentimes we have a fulfillment of a desire and then just rush on to the next thing. So savoring in and of itself, it's a Sri practice. And then I think that Sri can be provocative. With a goddess like Dumavati, old crone goddess, she's more obvious, her provocative nature, her Kali. But Kamala has an edge too. Sri has an edge too. So Kamala, as a goddess, is often pictured sitting on a lotus. And there's an elephant on either side of her, pouring water on her, bathing her with Sri, 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 Sri. She's bathing, being bathed in the water of life in pleasure. And can you imagine yourself in that seat? And she's sitting on a lotus, no less. And the lotus is the image of a yoni and a root of pleasure and creative source of all things. So this degree of pleasure could make a person squirm like, oh my God, that's too much. That's just too much. And so there's another way of getting in the way of Sri, so to speak. And another thing is some of us are just more comfortable in the mud or at home there. Here's where I belong. This feels really comfortable and safe and grounded to me. Some people feel that way. These provocative edges have most of them to do with limits placed on understanding by, once again, education system, many forms of religion, capitalism, etc. I'm throwing them out like there's just little things like they're huge. They're big, loud frequencies. 
work at the very root of our understanding of our feeling of safety, the very primal. So to merge with Sri and pleasure, I believe we will meet these layers and find out I'm the one in the way. And I'm the one putting limits on my ability to receive. Oh, here's another one, a very old one. It's really wrong for me to experience pleasure when so many are struggling. And therefore, I am going to become a bottleneck that squeezes off the tree. Now, that's helpful. Not. I mean, oh, I have to say, I bet there's some people on this call that are very comfortable with Shri. They're in the Shri club. I want to join that club. They're very comfortable with Shri. It's very admirable to me. I remember a friend who I knew when she was very poor, on food stamps even, and Shri was always there. She'd get an apple and she'd carefully cut it up and make it into a rose and put it on a plate for us to share. She's in the Shri club. And there's this one other edge that can come up, I think, about the allowing of Shri, and that is how will it be when it goes away? How am I going to feel when this pleasure is gone? So that can actually create a crimping off of Shri because it's going to go away. This can't last forever. And therefore, the high practice of being able to hold both pleasure and the pain, to hold both, to sit it in the middle and hold that strong edge. Big practice for sure. So I have another poem, but it's kind of long, so I'm not sure I'll read it. I guess there is one more thing I want to say before I stop, before I just open it up. This other consideration I have for myself, which is as I experience pain and sorrow and loneliness and heartbreak, which I do from time to time, I think I want to make an inquiry in a way of asking myself, and is there Shri? Because the Velcro for the negative will be very strong. I can so easily become that negative. So if I could make an inquiry, and yet is there Shri? And yet is pleasure present? Even so, that's a task I'm setting for myself. So what do you think? Any inspiration come to mind? There's a lot of wisdom in this call. Please chime in if you're so inclined. Erin, your poetry has been so beautiful, incredibly inspiring. Well, I was just thinking about all of the ways in which, as women, we reject pleasure. We're afraid of pleasure. We deny pleasure. And that can get really complex, I think. So could you talk about that a little bit, the relationship between women and pleasure and sometimes that tendency to deny or limit. Maybe we allow ourselves to have some of it, a little bit, but there's so much abundance in pleasure. Well, I'm going to answer it in a certain way and then see if anybody else has some thoughts on that too. This is a certain fun way I want to answer it. And this is from Chinese medicine. I think you'll appreciate this. You know, there's these little lines, mostly that women get right here, these little lines going right here. (laughs) In Chinese medicine face reading, what it said these little lines mean 
are indications that the person has been giving out a lot, nourishing outward a lot. So think of it as pleasure and sure and giving out a lot and not balancing it with also the taking in. And so my teacher in Chinese medicine face reading said, you don't like those little lines? Don't get filler. You just got to indulge yourself to the point of guilt. That was her exact instruction. <laughs> so I don't know. Guilt would be a certain thing for one person. It might be a chocolate bar and for another person, maybe it's different. What comes up for me is when you talk about Shri, this may not always be what you think you want. I've been experimenting with being able to be present with things that are not comfortable or or painful or heartbreaking. And I feel like if you don't get like all dramatic about that, that there is a lot of Shri in just embracing that and being open to that. And then the world, yeah, the world is like the way Lee Armstrong sang. Heartache and Shri, I think they go really hand in hand in so many traditions. If that's what you've got, then to embrace it, not in a neurotic way, but just, okay, that's what's coming up. And now I'm just going to keep breathing and do the next thing. Also, you were saying when you desire something, instead of focusing on the thing, to follow. Follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah. And how any kind of longing can be transformative. Or I've been wondering about that. Instead of wanting that thing, can I follow the exquisite energy that comes with that? I'm sitting on the second floor of the building. And I'm looking out the window directly up here, and the moon is almost full here in Arizona. And the sky is just a muted gray-blue, so it's still light, but that moon is just growing brighter and brighter. The thoughts that are arising for me is that the reality of the present moment has within it this constant call of beauty or manifestation of beauty if I'm slowed down enough to see that this is what is instead of what's next, which is my usual mode of operating. What's the next thing on my to-do list? But as I'm sitting here with you all, I'm just experiencing so much pleasure in just being with you and hearing your inspirational words. And then this moon is just off the charts with wonder. So thanks for the reminder to just stop. Preparing this and contemplating and reading, I just kept coming across the word presence again and again and again. To become fully present opens a tap to Sri or a wordle. I love this topic and I was just thinking my Sri teacher recently has been my mother my mother has Alzheimer's and she's moved in memory care and I visit her frequently. And we were reading that poem about one day you will see your reflection. <laughs> it turns out this is a symptom of Alzheimer's where when you look in the mirror, you think you're seeing another person. It's not you. 
And she has these beautiful conversations with herself now. And it's her best friend. And when I come and see her, she grabs my hand and she says, come meet my friend. And we go and look in the mirror. And it's such an interesting thing. It's almost like she had to forget herself to remember herself. And the other thing that came up for me, and this is with my mom as well, is that she tends, even in the Alzheimer's, to be on the positive. She's so full of love and joy. And there are others that she lives with and they get really frustrated. Like, what are you so happy about? Like, it's a bad thing. And I remember times before she had Alzheimer's that she got that response in life. And I can relate to that too, where it would shut her down. Like, oh, I better stop being so happy. When it was genuine, it was not phony. It was full-hearted, genuine joy. And then the doing it because it offends people in some way in our culture. And now she doesn't have that. She just moves away and goes and talks to her friend in the mirror that always smiles back to her. And so as soon as I come into her room, I have this little music box and we play the Beatles and instantly start dancing. It's not even a hesitation. It's just instantly. And she looks at me and recognizes me because I just go right into movement and joy. It's almost as if that's all she has the time for anymore. (laughs) And it's just a really good reminder because it would be easy for me to get into this sadness and sorrow about what's going on with her. But I don't want to waste any time when she so easily will go into joy with me. And I want to savor that and not limit it because there's enough of that in the world. And I'm just enjoying Three with her. Tomorrow we're going to listen to music. She loves watching children play. She loves music. And it's like so full of joy. I feel like it's a practice of really getting to savor that. And I realized, yeah, there is this tendency to run away from it, not just run away from it, but to judge it as something's wrong because you're so happy. I don't want to turn into that. I'm done subduing that. And I'm glad I have this wonderful model in my mom right now. So. Thank you so much for speaking on this. Yeah, my teacher, Lee Lozowick, who, if I'm not misquoting him, said that the most repressed emotion is joy. I think that's how it went. It wasn't anger. The most repressed emotion is joy. Mm. Could be Shri, too. <laughs> Being guilty because you're enjoying yourself. It's like what they used to tell us about eat your food because kids in Tibet have nothing. So there was always this feeling guilty about pleasure. It is something that I've been working with to feel that, to feel that without questioning it, without judging it, without feeling guilty. Shit's happening all over the place. But there is also this. Right now I'm getting it a lot from just being in nature, just seeing the moon, just seeing green. This is amazingly incredible. It's magic, mystery, and miracle just to be able to see green and feel the pleasure of that without adding stuff to it, questioning it, judging it, or denying it, or making it bigger. All the things that we do to add on or subtract, let it be. Let it be. Of course, age helps. Yeah. Talking about work, you've done all the hard work, and now just okay, enjoy this. 
That's actually another really strong teaching in Chinese medicine is that in the later years, I hesitate to say this because some people get very ill, but in the later years, you're meant to enjoy. The golden path includes that in the later years, you're meant to enjoy. Back to your question about women feeling guilty about pleasure. Do you have some more thoughts on that? Well, I think it's something that's deep-seated in, I would say, not just our culture, but in many patriarchal cultures of the world. This repression of pleasure, of sensuality, because there is a very sensual aspect to pleasure. And I think that there's a sensual aspect to God, to the divine. I just know that from observing myself and working with myself and all of that, that I see those tendencies. And at the same time, as we get older, some of those layers of whatever it is, whether it's shame or being concerned about what others think of us, they begin to drop away. And it deepens and opens our capacity for pleasure more. And I think grief does that too. I think that really being able to descend into the wild, raw nature of grief, if we can metabolize it, increases and expands our capacity for enjoyment and pleasure. I can add something else that just came to my mind. I remember as a young woman, I was pursuing lots of different spiritual paths, going to India, all of this stuff. And my dad would say things like, when are you going to get a real life and a real job? And I finally came to realize that what a real life and a real job meant was suffer, anxiety, and scarcity. And so that's a real voice that many of us were raised with, especially those of us who entered a spiritual path, because for many of our parents or friends or children even, (laughs) what we were doing was not normal suffering and struggle that a lot of people have to go through, even though in our own way, we had our own struggles. But also one of the thought came to my mind, which was that when our teacher Lee was alive, and of course afterwards also, this whole conversation comes up about keeping an edge, keeping the work alive, keeping the edge. And I think that often translates into keeping things difficult, keeping things hard, being out of breath and pushing against. And if there's anything that keeps an edge for me, it's the continual recognition of where I'm not surrendering to the joy, the pleasure, the just thisness of existence. So I think there's a real possibility there. Not to make this black and white generalization, but it seems to me that women are able to rest in oh gosh, experience in a way that men aren't a lot. In our family, we used to joke about my dad. It was such a caricature in a certain way, created by society, I think. And uh, when we would stop somewhere, my mom would be sitting in the front seat and she'd be kind of slow, 
not tremendously slow, but he would look at her and he would say, get out, get out, get out. And we would be in the back seat just laughing because <laughs> he was always pushing and pushing just over everything. And my poor mom, but she was so good natured about it most of the time, although she could be a little passive aggressive. If I'm going to schedule some time for pleasure, I need to schedule it. It doesn't come so naturally to just slow down. I have to schedule time each day to meditate. And that is so nurturing for me. I mean, without that, I don't know where I would be. And then it is a kind of a calling for me that my teacher, Lee Lossowick, it seemed to me like he was always working. And I kind of resonate with that. So how to hold that? Actually, I think it's more to me the way that I do things that matters. It seems like he was able to be moving and working and also to be in the moment. And I remember talking to him once, asking him about something like this and about working and working as if it was something to be aspired to. And he said, well, if you like to work, that's what you like to do. Something like that. To enjoy myself in doing what seems to be a tendency. I'm responding a little bit to what you just said. My son sent me a quote that he was really inspired by, by George Bernard Shaw. I was for a minute thought I would include it in this talk. And then I thought, oh, it doesn't really fit. So I don't have it nearby or in front of me, but it was to the effect of, he was saying to be totally used up, to be just lit on fire, to be used up, to burn and work and work and work. And that is the true joy of life. My 31-year-old son really resonated with that. And my much older self said, well, yeah, maybe (laughs) that's not going to work for me now. (laughs) But I can remember feeling that way. Oh, that can be totally joyful to work really, really hard until it's not. I'm thinking about something that Werner Earhart said, or I think he said, all used up. By the end of life, I'd like to be all used up, having given whatever I had. Somehow, I don't think that that's in contradiction with all this. Some people might be more inclined to be that way, and some people not. But like I said, it's a question calling to me. But I think that being all used up is not necessarily completely in the realm of doing. We want to be used up in the realm of being, too. We want our being to soak up and absorb and experience. I think we have to be careful because, like other people have been saying, I like to work as well, but that's really changing. It's really changing. And I think we have to be able to see ourselves and what our psychological tendencies are. It's easy to say, well, I just want to be used up and I really want to serve, but always to keep an open mind about <laughs> what our psychological tendencies are. But I just think being used up is is much more it's much more than just doing, 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 doing. So I just wanted to add that. It might be useful to think of it as I'm doing my work or my day. Is it feeling like a grind without any lubrication? Then I would say it 
for me, that's an absence of Sri. Or I could work really, really hard one day and just be in the flow. And then that would be Sri or pleasure to me. So it might be an inside job to figure this out. You mentioned the uh, song, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. There's an absolutely gorgeous version of that on YouTube performed by a whole lot of children. And I think the, the guys who produce those songs is called Playing for Change. It's just beautiful. Okay, that last poem. All right, here we go. This is Billy Collins, and the title of the poem is Center. At the first chink of sunrise, the windows on one side of the house are frosted with stark orange light, and in every pale blue window on the other side, a full moon hangs, a round white blaze. I look out one side, then the other moving from room to room as if between countries or parts of my life. Then I stop and stand in the middle, extend both arms like Leonardo's man naked in a perfect circle. And when I begin to turn slowly, I could feel the whole house turning with me, rotating free of the earth. The sun and moon in all the windows move too with the tips of my fingers the solar system turning by degrees with me, morning's egomaniac, turning on the hallway carpet in my slippers, taking the cold orange, blue, and white for a quiet, unhurried spin, all wheel and compass, axis and reel, as wide awake with pleasure as I will ever be. <laughs> <laughs> 